0: All right, let's take our Bibles to, in turn, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we've been looking at this uh, uh, with the Christmas interruption, so to speak, uh, for the past, um, oh, three weeks or so, so I'm just going to set the context here and begin at verse 21 and read through the end of the chapter, which is 25, but this morning we'll be looking Uh, especially at verses 24 and 25. So if you were with us last Sunday, that's where we ended. Verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you can and you're willing, please stand as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. And then this from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, "...who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled or being abused, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." And then the chapter closes out with these phenomenal words in 24 and 25, "...and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for your living word. And as Terry shared just a few moments ago, that is the word that saved us, that living word that caused us to be born again. And a lifetime would be too short to say thank you every minute of every day. We ask now as we look into this closing part of chapter 2 of 1 Peter that you would help us to grasp it, you would help us to understand it, that you might teach us, that it would be an encouragement to us, that it would be a challenge to us. So we ask that you would do that work in us this morning, each one of us here in this room. We pray together now in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, New Year's has already been mentioned this morning. Of course, it wasn't very long ago. It was just this past week not even a week ago, and while for many, many across the country, if not across the world, New Year's appears to be a time of celebration and and letting loose, if you will, of burdens and concerns of the past year, 2023. Reality really below the surface may paint a somewhat different picture. Merely crossing over from one year calendar to another year calendar doesn't really eradicate our fears. According to an extensive survey done in December, Americans have never been more fearful both alarmed about the world stage, including our own economic and political future, but also the survey revealed experiencing dread concerning their personal lives and and their own place in this world. 66% of those responding to the survey said that they were pessimistic about the future year, meaning the year that we're in right now, 2024. This is the highest percentage in the history that this survey has been taking. And the commentary was added that this is certainly a crisis of expectations, a crisis of expectations. Now think about your own fears as I mentioned this. How many of, of them seemed hitched, really, to this same thing, to certain expectations in your life? Whether you visualize as coming from yourself or coming from somewhere else that would give rise to questions like, am I really doing in 2024 what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I going to be able to pay all of my bills or catch up on my debt in 2024? Will I get relief from this particular health issue that that I've been battling with? In 2024, am I doing enough as a, as a parent, as a friend, as a spouse, as a Christian? Do people like me? And maybe we even come to the point, although never spoken out loud, but we may wonder, does God even like me? And on it goes, fears that produce anxiety and stress about what we're not or what we're not doing, or or what we're not measuring up to, or even on a broader scale, what the world is not doing for me. The same fears regularly squelch our Christian lives, both positionally how do I stand before God, and, and even practically, how should I really go about following Jesus Christ, and, and have, I, have I gone far enough in following Jesus Christ? Am I doing enough following Jesus Christ? All of this adding up to, again, expectations, expectations, too high, too much, too hard, and people with little or reduced confidence are not going then to live boldly and fearlessly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we've been talking about the last two to three weeks. Well, this is where Peter comes in once again in the word of God under the inspiration from God's Holy Spirit with a reminder, but not just a reminder. I see in the language that's used here at the close of chapter 2 of A grab-you-by-the-shoulders-pay-attention-spiritual-wake-up reminder. It's as if Peter is saying to us, Look me in the eye. Your Savior, this one, this this Savior who, who went to the cross for you, has met your expectations. It is done, it is finished, it is complete, it is fulfilled. He, he took our insecurities and fears to the cross. A lot of what we were just singing about, Terry. Our standing before God is settled. We are, we are his. No one can touch us, the scriptures tell us. No thing can shake us, the scriptures tell us. We are free to live boldly for Jesus. In fact, Peter's words... As we looked at them last week, we have been called for this purpose. Even, Peter is highlighting here, if we are hated, even if we are ridiculed, even if we are made fun of, even if we win no popularity contests among our peers. Well, how are we then reminded of this? And this is the exciting thing about verses 24 and 25 at the end of this chapter, because herein is our rock-solid confidence. So we have a crisis of expectations. We have, then, equals a crisis of confidence. People are afraid. People are fearful. Is that influencing us as Christians? Here, then, is our confidence. Well, we can look at this in two ways, two areas, one in each verse that is rock solid, that nothing in this world, no matter how bleak the media might paint the future of 2024, that can rob us of this rock solid confidence in the truth of God's word. The first one, as I mentioned before, where a lot of our our expectations fall and a lot of our fears and insecurities come from, is in the positional area. So let's look, first of all, at positional confidence. And what Peter tells us in verse 24, the way he answers this, is telling us, reminding us, holding us by the shoulders spiritually, he is our substitute. That's what our confidence is based on. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Look at verse 24 again. I just, I love this verse. We could just camp here actually for a couple of weeks. We won't. We'll just do that this morning. But I want you, as we read it together, look at it slowly. And he himself, Jesus Christ. Now notice how the pronouns are repeated there. What does that mean? Why couldn't it just say, and he bore our sins in his body? What's the significance of that? It's a reminder there that Jesus Christ did this willingly. He did this personally for you. He didn't have to. He wasn't obligated. He did it because he wanted to. So there's a beauty there as you go through this. That's why we need to track through it slowly, that you see that the repetition of pronouns there has great significance for your confidence. He did it, even though he didn't have to do it, he did it for you. It's very personal as well. Our, we've got we, we've got these different you different pronouns that are very personalized. So yes, they had an immediate application to Peter's spiritually beat up audience that were scattered around the globe, that had lost their jobs, their families, their standing in society. But that by the living word of God makes application to every one of us in this room who know Jesus Christ this morning. So it has that same personal application. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he reminds us again, for by his wounds you were healed. Some more imagery there from Isaiah chapter 53. 29 words you need to absorb each one of them. And at the beginning of the verse marks the direction back to following in Jesus' steps. As we've looked at the last couple of weeks. Willing to live as the Lord Jesus Christ lived without fear. Not worried about what the world thought of him. Not worried about the insults and the suffering and and the abuse and the being made fun of. And being out of step with whatever is cool and popular in culture. Look what he did. He bore our sins in his body. Bore is an interesting word that's pretty limited in the Greek when we translate it into just four letters, but it literally means to carry some massive, unusually heavy weight, a, a backbreaking weight, almost a weight that would be impossible to bear. He himself carried this unfathomable weight in his body. He chose to do it the moment he left heaven. He knew this was the plan. He knew this was going to happen. What is this weight that he's carrying on his body, this unfathomable weight? It says crystal clear in the text. That weight is our sins, and he carried that weight to the cross. I think it would be helpful for us to go back to what this actually looked like in real time in the gospels so i want you to turn to john chapter 19 if you will john chapter 19. we need to see how this narrative plays out that then will highlight those few words that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross i'm going to begin at verse 17 John chapter 19, beginning at verse 17, and I am going to read through verse 30. So I know it's a little bit of a lengthy portion. John's verses are actually fairly short, but follow along and really absorb the scene here as though you're standing there. You're an eyewitness like John was. They took took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews." Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. They said, therefore, to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to to decide whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing nearby, this would be John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Now just think about the, those words right there. This is from eternity past, from before Genesis 1:1 and your Bibles. The timeless eternal plan of God has been fulfilled. Over all of those years, all of those prophets. All of the godly followers of God before that, the plan has been fulfilled, accomplished, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there so that they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. When Jesus there had, therefore had received the sour wine, he said... It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What were the last words that Jesus said? What was that? It is finished. It is finished. Three words in English. It is finished. I want to ask you, this sounds so elementary, but what does that mean? I'll never forget the first time that I read those words. I had to read it again and again, and I wasn't quite sure what it meant, so I read it again, and as God began to take that verse, and it made sense to me, and it, it made sense and in all the, the rest of the gospel and, and what salvation meant. I was reeling the first time I understood what it meant. It is finished. Now, let me ask you, does that mean then that Jesus Christ took all of our sins to the cross? Now, I'm not asking you in an academic way. I'm asking you in your soul, in your heart, is that what it means? That Jesus Christ took every last sin that you committed or committing today will commit in the future to the cross You know, last fall, that fateful day always arrives that you might call Leaf Day, when if you've got a number of trees on your property, you've finally got to get around to it. You know, you may be one of those individuals who does it on a regular basis, cleans up leaves, and then you clean it up, and the next day they're all there again. And you just keep doing it and keep doing it, or you might be somebody like me who I kind of wait And you watch some of the last leaves fall down and you're like, okay, it's time. And you gather them all up together. But leaves are not very cooperative, are they? What do they do? You can try to rake them and they jump over the top of the rake. If there's a slight breeze or a wind, uh, they all disperse again. Or if you try to pick them up, They, you'd never get them all to the trash can or to the burn pile. Some of them fall by the wayside. You've gotta try to rake them up again. You've gotta try to pick them up again or blow them. If you've got a blower, you're not gonna get them all in one place. They don't all just huddle together. You've always got these stray leaves that go somewhere else. Well, as you're trying to get all of your leaves together off of your grass, out of your flower beds, wherever they are, off your porch, That one last time. And those stray leaves manage to fall out of your hands or jump out of the trash barrel or or blow off of the burn pile before you can get rid of them. Is that kind of how you visualize what Jesus Christ did with your sins? Well, yeah, in, in theory, I mean... Academically, theologically, doctrinally, I, I understand. He paid for my sin. We say it so many times, we can recite it in our sleep. But practically, do we really understand what that means? Or do we think, I just haven't quite measured up what about this stray sin and and this stray sin? And uh, I'm I'm not quite sure. I mean, I, I understand what he did and that it was nice and everything, but I don't know if it was everything, if it was complete. Have you ever felt that way? I know that's how I was raised in the religious system that I was raised in. It was never enough. It was never enough. When you felt forgiven, a day later, you were unforgiven. It was just something that we had to do, that we had to participate in. There was another ritual to go through, something to to add to that forgiveness because it just was never quite complete. And it amazed me when I became a born-again believer, delivered out of religion into a real relationship with Jesus Christ, that much of that infected Christianity as well. And when that destroys our faith, when that holds us back, when that makes us fearful and and uncourageous and we, we don't feel that we can quite live boldly for Jesus because we don't have that solid spiritual confidence based on the finished work of Christ... We rob ourselves of seeing the whole beautiful idea of substitution, of what Jesus did. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, these simple words, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, scripture paints, it's either one way or the other. Either your sins are on you or your sins are on Jesus. They can't be kind of on Jesus and kind of on you. Scripture doesn't leave that third option. Galatians 3:13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is what Jesus Christ did. On our behalf, the sinless, unblemished lamb became our substitute, died in our place. Everything. Have you ever had someone overshare some gruesome details in a story? It might be just too evil or or gory or perverse or gross or hideous, and you just have to eventually say, stop, spare me the details. Jesus never said spare me the details. It's hard for us to fathom, hard to imagine, but um, but try to picture the sinless lamb of God, completely sinless, completely righteous, completely holy, taking upon himself all of our sins, and not only our sins individually, all of them collectively in this room, and times how much in this world today, and in the past, and in the future. And in his sinlessness, someone has once said, although this is just an opinion, this is just a thought, it's nowhere in scripture, but that in his perfect holiness, imagine experiencing The pain and the depth and the evil and the darkness of each one of those sins. Because you and I can't, or we would be living very differently. In fact, a lot of us don't even know the depth of our sin. Because we rationalize it, we call it something else. We constantly talk ourselves into that we're somehow maybe better than we really are. But Jesus saw it purely, perfectly the depth of each one of our sins, and he carried that to the cross once and for all. And what did he say? What were his last words? It is finished. It is finished. Does that not give you a positional confidence that being our substitute, it is over. He has fulfilled that. The second part of this is the practical confidence, and we see this in the next verse, that he is our shepherd. So he is our substitute, but he is also our shepherd. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Who is the you here? The you here is an all-inclusive plural pronoun. It's not some, some group of, of less committed stragglers. It is all of us have gone astray. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused his iniquity, the iniquity of us to fall on him. All of us like sheep have gone astray sheep are are helpless you've heard this before they're they're easily distracted they're they're prone to wandering to getting lost they're defenseless as many many have said not the brightest animals in the animal kingdom we don't do well on our own it's a biblical fact but there is a remedy and verse 25 tells us what that remedy is we are not alone in this world. We are not left to figure this out on our own. We are not left alone to figure out what direction to go in, or what is right or wrong. He is a shepherd and a guardian. Guardian here is an interesting word. In the original language, it's a compound word, meaning it's two words joined together. But the first word can't stand alone as a word. It's an interesting word in the Greek language in that it is used to intensify another word. So what this means is you have the intensity plus the uh, word basically meaning in its root form to see. So you have a guardian as someone who sees exceptionally well, who sees what other people don't see. This is our Jesus. Jesus. Seeing what we can't see and then guiding us and protecting us and caring for us. Constantly reminding us that I am here. Constantly reminding us of a phrase that's repeated 40 times, I believe, in Scripture. Fear not. Constantly reminding us of what he told the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. This is his promise, not just for a select few, but all who know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why over the ages, there's been so many who have testified to an unusual deep joy and confidence even when the world has harshly persecuted them, even to the point of torture, even to the point Of death. One such believer during World War II was John Wilfinger, and he wrote this poem in his Bible when he found out that he was going to be literally executed for the Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote, No mere man is the Christ I know, but greater far than all below. Day by day his love enfolds me, day by day his power upholds me. All that God could ever be, the man of Nazareth is to me. No mere man can my strength sustain and drive away all fear and pain. Holding me close in his embrace when death and I stand face to face, Than all that God could ever be, the unseen Christ, will be to me. After he was executed, somebody found his Bible, and on that very day, perhaps minutes before, he faced the firing squad for the mere crime of loving Jesus Christ. He scribbled hastily below that poem, Hallelujah, this is real. It is real. We can face 2024 with confidence and courage because of what Christ has done for us, which nobody can take away from us. Nothing can diminish. Nothing can steal. And what Jesus Christ continues to do for us present tense do not fear let's pray father in heaven thank you so much for your exciting and applicable and wonderful word and I just pray that each one of us would take these verses to heart Lord and, and would keep them with us would carry them with us as we begin this year that to so much of the population seems bleak seems without hope, seems dark. May we be gospel lights of confidence and courage. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.